All right, have you guys ever heard of associative fears? Have you ever heard of associative fears? So associative fears are kind of like these fears you get because you go through an experience and you associate certain things with that experience. So uh, this kind of happens through like maybe if you went, you got in a car accident, you might fear a particular intersection every time you drive through it. Or you might fear a type of vehicle every time you see it. There, there are these associative fears. And I also think these associative fears can kind of come about through social cues. Like we can be taught associative fears. Like we see how our family members or our friends react to things through some of our formative years and we get an associative fear. Like every time we see that thing, whatever it is, we associate it with being afraid. And so I want to be honest, I think my mom gave me an associative fear, okay? My mom gave me an associative fear of cockroaches, all right? I'm scared of cockroaches. I'm mad enough to admit it. I'm scared of cockroaches. Here's why she gave me an associative fear of cockroaches. Growing up, Anytime there was a cockroach in our house, which was way too many times as I reflect on it, every time she saw a cockroach in our house, she would scream. And, and let me tell you, this wasn't any scream. This wasn't like, oh, a cockroach. This was, I think, the same scream she would make if someone chopped her pinky toe off. I think... I actually think it was maybe a worse scream. Like, this is the sort of scream. So every time there was a cockroach around, I'd hear this scream. And of course, even as a child, I think I had, like, heart arrhythmia from it or something. Like, my heart would stop, and I I just couldn't, like, get through. Like, and so now when I see a cockroach, it doesn't matter how much research I've done on cockroaches and how they're not that bad and how I know they can't hurt you. If I'm walking down the street and I see a cockroach, my hair stands on end a little bit. And I, I kind of give it a, a wide berth. And I'm afraid of cockroaches. I have this associative fear of cockroaches that I learned from these social cues that my mom gave me. Now, in Nehemiah, the people of God are attempting to answer the question, what does it mean to be the people of God? What does it mean particularly to be the people of God in times of danger? In times of discouragement. And so they're learning, hey, when you sense danger, when you see danger, when you sense discouragement or you are discouraged, how do you react as the people of God? And what I love about Nehemiah is it kind of recenters us as the people of God so many years later. Like it helps us to know what it really means to be the people of God. In fact, there's this overarching identity of the people of God that we see throughout the whole Bible. It's this kind of declaration that God makes about his people. And it's this identity. It's a people that are holy and set apart. Holy and set apart. When we hear the word holiness, we think kind of like purity. We think of like moral goodness, virtues, those kinds of things. And And holiness does have that. That's part of it. But holiness was really this idea about God where he was so other than his creation. That he was set apart. That he was so above. He was so different. He was altogether different than his creation in a lot of ways. While maintaining this purity in in, in who he is. And so when God says that the people of God are to be a holy and set apart people... We're going to be a people that look different than any people that don't say God is their God. And and the way this relates to associative fears and all this kind of stuff is, I think when the things that God calls us into, 
to be a holy and a set-apart people, I think that those things spit in the face of our sensibilities. I think they, they, they aren't what we've been trained up in. They aren't what our natural inclinations are. And so when the people of God say, hey, as we've been looking at the last few weeks, last couple months really, what the people of God do in these times of danger and discouragement, it's different than what you and I have been trained up to do in times of danger and discouragement. It's, they treat, they, it teaches us to react differently. It teaches us to live differently. It teaches us to see God differently. It teaches us to approach God differently. But to be a holy and a set-apart people in times of danger, in times of discouragement, there are going to be some of these things that are almost as powerful as associative fears in our life that we're going to have to give up that we're going to have to turn away from. To embrace these different identities, these different disciplines of the people of God as a holy and a set-apart people, we're going to have to reject some of our old habits. We're going to have to reject some of our old disciplines because God is inviting us to be a holy and a set-apart people. Really, that's what we've been doing throughout Nehemiah, right? We've been looking at what are some of these distinctives of the people of God? What do they do as a people of God? Especially the last few weeks, we've been looking at what does it mean for us to live and act as the people of God together? And so today, what we're going to do, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapters 10 through 12, and we're going to look at three more distinctives of the people of God. And there are three distinctives that they choose as the people of God to live out because they're being rooted in God's word and they're remembering what God has invited them into. And there are three different, there's really a a little bit more than three, but we'll talk about three different distinctives that they choose to live out. And then I think that we also, as the people of God today, are called to live them out as well. That even though this was in Nehemiah's day in a different context, in a different place, that these are the sort of things that God calls us into today as well, although it just might look a little bit differently in our context and in our place and in what God is doing in the history of how he's saving the world and restoring all things, okay? So we're going to be in Nehemiah chapters 10 through 12 together. What we'll, what we'll do today is I'll, we'll actually just go through 10 through 12 together, and then we'll talk about those three different distinctives that I think we see in Nehemiah's day, but also should see in our day. So I know some of you are already getting scared. They're going, Anthony said 10 through 12. That's a lot of chapters. Last week he read like a whole chapter of the Bible. I'm getting scared. And so don't worry, I'm not going to read all three chapters. But I do want to start off by going through the chapters The vast majority of 10, 11, and 12 are names of people like doing these things. So we'll we'll skip over that. They're important. It helps us see that these are rooted in real people and all that stuff. But we'll kind of go in the spaces where uh, the names aren't being said, which is only like 10 to 12 verses or so. And so I know it's a lot. I know it's, uh, you know, not the typical way we learn by kind of going through a big section of, of passages like this, but uh, we're going to do it. It's too late. I can't turn back now. So Nehemiah chapter 10, uh, let's start there. So Nehemiah chapter 10, the first 25 verses are, are, are the names of the people that signed the covenant that we talked about last week. Like the, the people came together and they worshiped God and they confessed sin and then they, they've signed their names on this covenant that they were making with God. And so the first 25 uh, verses are all the names of, of the people that signed that covenant, different leaders and whatnot. So let's hop into 28 and we'll start there reading. So verse 28 says this. 
The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have, sep- who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes." We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We'll stop there. So they make this covenant and then they immediately say, here's how we're going to live out this covenant. Okay, And so they they list through a few different things and then the rest of chapter 10 kind of talks about... even more of the things they're committed to. They're committed to different offerings and different tithes and different Levitical work and reinstating that Levitical work. And that's kind of how the rest of chapter 10 goes. Let's go to chapter 11. We'll just read the first couple of verses. So as they, as they just kind of say, hey, we're not going to neglect the house of our God, this is what happens next. Uh, verse 1 of 11. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So they've kind of rebuilt uh, Jerusalem. They've given it an infrastructure. They've given it walls. And so uh, I think they probably had to cast lots because I don't think people were just itching to get into this place that used to be kind of like the ghetto of Israel, right? Like they didn't want to get back into this place. And so they cast lots, which they really thought, saw as like God's divine will of who should be there. And so uh, those that, that the, however the lots worked, the dice rolled or whatever it was, um, they live in Jerusalem. And so the rest of chapter 11 is the names of the people that uh, settled in Jerusalem and then, and then even the people that settled in the villages around Jerusalem, okay? So then chapter 12, the first 26 verses, it's the names of all the priests that settled in Jerusalem. And then I'm going to read 27 because it's kind of like the next thing they do together as a people. And it says this, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to, to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, okay? And so uh, we'll stop there. But they decide to dedicate the walls to the Lord. And they say, God, this is yours. And they bring in all those Levites and singers and priests and all the different people that they had formed to bring together the infrastructure of Jerusalem and to live as God's people in distinct ways. And they dedicate the walls uh, to God, okay? And so uh, the rest of this little passage is basically how that goes about, where they were, what parts of the, the fences or the wall or the gate that they're on. And then uh, verse 43 kind of sums up the day for them. And so I want to read 43. And it just says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoice, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And then the rest of... Uh, 
the rest of chapter 12 is just essentially saying, hey, the Levitical work, the priestly work, the work we're called to do in upkeeping the temple and worshiping God, that is just back on track. We're reinstating it. So that's 10 through 12. There, we did it. We got through it. I know that's really hard because uh, we don't like reading the Bible. <laughs> and so uh, I hope that's not the case for us in years to come. But um, so we got through. This is kind of what they, they make this covenant. They put their names on it. They, they commit themselves to, to some distinctives and disciplines as a people to be holy and set apart. They're all things that God had commanded pr- previously through his word. And, and, and that's what they do. So now I want to get into this part of the sermon where I talk through three of their distinctives that they lived out in their context in certain ways, but I think they're distinctives that we are called to live out in our context in certain ways as well, okay? So the first distinctive of the people of God, the first thing they, they, they really seem to do is they refuse to syncretize their faith. They refuse to syncretize their faith, okay? I'll, I'll explain what that word means. Uh, it, well, I'll just do it right now. Syncretizing your faith is when you take uh, syncretizing anything is really when you take two really different ideas, you kind of combine them, but you keep the name of one of those ideas. So sometimes religions syncretize. They're two really different religions, they adopt the practices of the other religion, but they still call it the name of maybe the more dominant religion or something like that. And so, uh, so the people of God refused to do this with their faith as they followed God. We see this in chapter 10, verse 30. What we see there is, is they're saying, hey, we are not going to give our daughters away to foreign peoples, and we're not going to take foreign wives for our sons. Which, on face value, reading it, some of us in the room go, that kind of sounds a little bit racist. <laughs> like, what is going on? Why, why can't the people of God uh, marry people of different ethnicities, different nationalities? Like, why can't the people of God do that? And in fact... This verse and verses like it in the Bible have been used to promote and promulgate racism and racist ideas. Like the the verses like this have been used in the Bible to say, hey, black people and white people, they can't get married. It's just, it has happened. I think it's good we acknowledge it because it helps us to see where people have twisted scripture wrongly and so that we could understand it. In fact, I've literally had a Christian that I used to go to church with within the last couple years argue to me that black people and white people shouldn't get married and in fact that even different ethnicities shouldn't live in the same country together and he used verses like this to say hey this is why this is why I think that and so at face value for some people this verse is either you these verses like this are used for racism or they sound racist but racism isn't what is happening in these commands What's happening is the people of God are refusing to syncretize their faith. Because when, when that happened, when, when they would marry people of other countries, the people of other countries had other gods that they would serve and that they would follow. And every time Israel could, would do this and they would marry people with other gods, what happened was not that these people all of a sudden started worshiping God in, like in spirit and in truth. Israel began to adopt their ways. Israel began to adopt their ways of worship, their ways of living, their ways of practice, their ways of sin, all of that stuff. And so Israel is not uh, committing themselves to like a racist commitment. They're saying, we're not going to syncretize our faith. We're going to to keep it pure. If, If you don't believe me that this is what happened in Israel, just read the book of Judges. 
The book of Judges is a story where the Canaanites and other people groups had way too much influence on Israel. And Israel, time and time again, adopts the ways of the surrounding regions. They begin to worship idols, so much so that Gideon is too afraid to tear down an idol, so he does it in the middle of the night. Because Israel get mad when literally the first commandment is like, don't do that. God says to his people, don't worship idols. They begin to uh, partake in all sorts of weird practices. Like one time this guy wants to sacrifice his daughter. He wants to commit a, 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 a child sacrifice to, to love and honor God when God's like, hey, don't do that. That's not, we don't do that in my people. The way in Judges they treat and abuse and dishonor women spits in the face of so much Levitical law about how to treat and honor women with equality and dignity that they deserve. And so in Nehemiah, when they're saying, hey, we're not going to marry people of other nationalities, other countries, what they're saying is, we're not going to syncretize our faith. In fact, it was normal and perfectly acceptable for anyone of any nationality to join Israel and become part of the people of God. If you read through the Old Testament, God makes plenty of ways where he says, hey, join us. Like, become the people of God. You just kind of got to do this, you know, uncomfortable thing called circumcision. But please join us. Like, there were ways for people to become the people of God, and really, they just had to swear fealty to the Lord. And so, it's not a, a racist command saying, hey, you can't ever. It's just saying, hey, who we marry has to serve and follow the Lord our God. And God was doing this unique thing in the, in the middle of history where he was taking a whole nation of people to represent himself so that, and you can read this in scripture, so that the nations would be drawn in, so that the nations would see the glory of God. And so the Israelites in this first little command where they refused to marry people of different countries or lands or however they phrase it there, it's really a commitment not to syncretize their faith. For us, many years later, as we look to not syncretize our faith, but to be faithful to God, to live this thing out the way that Jesus would have us live it out. Like, we want to follow Jesus, not a whole bunch of other people, and Jesus is mixed in there. We, in these times of danger and discouragement, if we're trying to go, hey, who are we as the people of God? One of the things we do as the people of God is we don't sync up our faith with other faiths. We don't sync up our disciplines with other non-godly disciplines or sinful disciplines. That's what we have to commit ourselves to as the people of God. But this is really tricky for us as Christians, isn't it? I grew up in the church. I've been through all sorts of boycotts. I've been through all sorts of things. And although maybe they were well-meaning, often we're missing the mark. And not seeing where, they, where we as Christians were actually syncretizing our faith in all sorts of other ways. And we were kind of just demonizing one thing and saying, hey, that's the thing we got to boycott. That's the thing we got to leave alone. Or else our faith becomes impure when it's just kind of like a silly thing like Disney movies. Like that was literally a boycott when I was a kid. 
So it's, it's always been this tricky thing for us as Christians to know, what does it mean for us to not syncretize our faith, to be faithful, to reject the things we should reject and uh, embrace the things we should re- embrace and maybe even redeem some of the things that have been twisted in certain ways. I want to give two little, little examples to show why this is a tricky dance for us as Christians, okay? Here's one thing I've noticed we've often as Christians, or I often talk to Christians who kind of just outright reject everything about this area of life, Okay? Please bear with me, but I I think it's something that we've maybe been a little too heavy-handed with as Christians, where we feared syncretism, but in our fear of syncretism, we haven't fought the right giant, so to speak, or whatever. And so it's, it's the area of psychology and mental health. Like, often as Christians... When people have had psychological problems or uh, have, have gone to counseling or gone to therapists in different ways, often as Christians, I've heard a lot of Christians kind of go, reject that, everything about that. We can't do that. We could only use the Bible to deal with these situations and deal with these things. Now listen, I think the Bible is the word of truth. I think the Bible leads to life. I think all of that stuff, really, Jesus himself does, and they wrote down what he said to be clear. And so I'm not trying to diminish the Bible in any way. I'm just trying to say I think we've been a little bit heavy-handed in rejecting everything about psychology and the mental health field at times as Christians. Certainly there are things in that field that we should reject that are against the Bible, that are more cultural and more a humanistic worldview, a worldview without a God. Like there are certainly things like that, but sometimes I think we've just been a little bit too heavy-handed for us. So, so I hope you're starting to get the idea of why this idea of syncretism is it's a tricky dance for us as Christians. We tend to pendulum swing, accept all of one thing, reject all of one thing, when sometimes there are good gifts in God's creation that we can accept parts of and reject other parts of, and that's kind of the dance that we have to do as Christians, okay? So that's, that's one example of me saying, okay, I think we went too far sometimes in talking about this. And some Christians, certainly, they don't go far enough in talking about that. I want to talk about something else. I want, now I want to talk about some, an area of life that I think we as Christians in this country often syncretize to our faith. An area of life we often kind of baptize it in the name of Jesus and bring it into our faith and, and live just like the rest of the world lives, Okay? And it's the area of how we use our money. Okay, how Christians use their money is often the same way the world views their money, right? Like some of you right now, and for good reason, you're, you're, at times, you're getting angry that I'm even bringing up the idea of money. And, and it's because there's been all sorts of charlatans out there that have abused money and have formed churches just to make money and all that kind of stuff. And so you get uncomfortable. But when we see Jesus and we see the New Testament teachings, money is something that's talked about as an idol all the time. And so a pastor like me shouldn't be afraid to bring it up because of the wrath that he'll get later about it. Doesn't that show that we're... Uh, allowing the way we use money and think about money to be syncretized into our faith? Shouldn't the way Christians use money and think about money be altogether different than our neighbors outside these rooms? Here's how it gets baptized a lot of times. A lot of times how we spend our money getting baptized into the faith kind of goes like this. Well, you know, God gave me this job. God gave me this money. 
God gave me all this. And so we kind of baptize it in the name of Jesus, and then we go use money the exact same way everybody out there uses money. Again, this is a tricky dance, because I'm not saying, hey, go out there and be monks in the desert. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying go out there and never spend your money the same exact way as your your non-Christian neighbors around you. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying Christians and how they use their money should be markedly different than the world around us. How we think about our money should be markedly different than the world around us. Maybe not in every instance, but in a lot of instances. And to encourage you guys, I really actually think you as a body do this very well. I'm amazed by the generosity of this little local church and the, and, and the things that you guys are committed to and the ways you want to serve the world and the ways you want to bless the world with your money and be generous. And so to be clear, but it is just something that I've often seen in the universal church where we let money and how we think about it be really formed by the culture around us by the world, by our sensibilities. And then whenever Christians kind of speak out against that or want to overturn that, they're kind of like treated as heretics. May that not be so. So I wanted to give two little examples so that you guys can see, okay, where is it, what's Anthony talking about? What's he thinking about? Those are just two of a million examples I could give. Two of a million examples of times where we maybe fear syncretism too much or we don't fear it enough. And I could actually, I think probably other pastors in redemption as they're going through this passage, they're probably going to list all sorts of ways that they see us as a church syncretizing our faith. And I could do that, and it would be really convicting and awesome and fun, and lots of people would say, good sermon, I'm glad you said that thing, right? And it would be great. But I I worry that sometimes when I, I list different things to help convict us, I worry that some of us in the room have been inoculated to me saying that. Like, it's almost like me saying it, and you're like, I'm fine. I don't need to hear that. And so as we as a church look at this commitment, to this refusal, really, to, to syncretize our faith to other faiths, what, here's what I want us to do. I want us to examine ourselves. I want us to look at ourselves. I want us to go, where have I baptized things into this faith, into my walk with Jesus, that are not the way of Christ, that are not what he would walk me into? What are the things for me specifically that I have baptized into my faith that I probably shouldn't, okay? I want you to pray and think about that over this next week and go, what are those things? Because I could tell you all sorts of things and you could be all sorts of convicted, but usually, let's be honest, when we hear a preacher say something that's really convicting, we're usually like, man, that's really convicting for the person in my small group or my spouse, or my child, or whatever it is. Pray a prayer like David prayed. Search my heart and know me, O God. Reveal to us where we're syncretizing our faith. It may not not be the case for us. Amen? All right, next distinctive. Next is distinctive uh, of the the people of God. The next thing they they do in Nehemiah that we see is they, they make a practice of Sabbath. They, they dedicate themselves to Sabbath. They say, hey, we are going to Sabbath, right? They see, hey, when people roll into town, we're not going to buy from them if it's a Sabbath or a holy day, a set-apart day. Sabbath is something God made for mankind. 
It's this beautiful gift that reflects the story of creation where God took one day out of seven, he stopped creating, he stopped cultivating, and he just rested and enjoyed creation. And then he invited his people to do the same thing. Six days out of the week, create, cultivate, work. On the seventh day, rest, stop. Let that day be set apart and different from all the other days. I love what Eugene Peterson says and how he describes Sabbath. Sabbath is a day to pray and play. He's got a lot of great writings on it. You can see how he connects that throughout Scripture, and it's not just his own ideas. It's, like, it's really this, this day to pray and play. For Israel in their day, as they committed to Sabbath, that was so different from the, the countries around them and the peoples around them. I'm sure the attitude was kind of like, work every day till you die. We got to survive. Seven out of seven days, we got to be making sure that we're working and getting all we need. Building up our wealth, building up our riches, or even just working to survive. And so when God says, hey, I want you to take a day and Sabbath, he's really making them, hey, you're, you're going to be a set apart people. You're going to be different from all the peoples around you if you do something like this. I think Sabbath for us today is something we kind of have wrongfully moved away from as Christians. And I think that probably has happened because Jesus got into all of these arguments with religious leaders about the Sabbath, right? Like all the time Jesus was doing something on the Sabbath and religious leaders would come up to him and be like, why are you doing this on the Sabbath? And one of the ways he answers that question though helps us to realize what Jesus was actually doing. Jesus says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He's saying Sabbath is a gift that was made by God for man. Man wasn't created to live Sabbath. Like, man wasn't created to live under Sabbath, in a sense. And so Jesus is not trying to abolish Sabbath. He's trying to give it its proper place. He's saying Sabbath is this beautiful gift from God to have a day out of the week set apart, different, holy, a day where you pray and where you play. Jesus wanted to give Sabbath its proper place. I think Christians in times like these need a new commitment to Sabbath. And I think it would make us holy and set apart. And I think it would change us as a people. Think of our lives. You could read this book. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. And it goes into length, kind of talking about how busy we are as people. We work more hours than ever in human history. We are constantly moving. We have so much information. We're constantly trying to entertain ourselves. We are nonstop moving, going, uh, not resting. Even on our weekends that are supposed to be for rest, usually they're consumed with uh, obligations to people, social obligations that we feel like we must commit and do, and sometimes you should do that, or developing our children into like super children, right? Like that's what the weekends are for now if you have kids. It's like this kid needs to be a super child. Like that's the time for the weekend to pursue these things. And so we as a culture are going non-stop. We're overworked, we're tired, we're stressed. When you talk to doctors and medical professionals and say, hey, what's one of the biggest problems in our country today? And they'll always say stress. Stress is a huge issue. 
Stress is really taking on too much, working too much. Some of us have to do it to survive. I get it. But I wonder if a practice of Sabbath would be good for us. I don't just wonder it. I know it would be good for us. I know it would be good for us to commit to this practice of Sabbath, this gift that God has given us. I think we'd find ourselves with more energy if we took one day out of the week and made it different than all the other days. I think we'd find ourselves less stressed. I think we'd have a correct understanding of our place in the world. I think we'd have more time for prayer. Sabbath is really hard to do in this culture. It just is. This culture is not built around taking a Sabbath once a week. But that doesn't mean we as the people of God don't try to. Don't commit ourselves to taking a Sabbath. I think it's something we need to do. Imagine as life comes at you, as you live through life, if every, every week you had one day where you could just stop and rest and think and pray and enjoy God's creation, imagine how that would change you. Imagine how that would make you worship God more. Imagine how that would help you understand and prioritize things better. We need a day where we stop, and it's different than all the other days in our week. Sure, there might be some similar things, but we need a day that's where we stop, and, it, and the day itself is holy and set apart so that we can live out this distinctive of being a holy and a set-apart people, a day where our phones are maybe on silent, a day where we choose to enjoy creation, not profit off of it, a day where we slow down, a day where we're outside more. I think one day a week, if the people of God committed themselves to that, I think a lot would change for us. It's a beautiful gift from God that we're just not taking him up on. He's saying, hey, I've got this beautiful gift for you guys. So much so, it's in the Ten Commandments. And we're not taking him up on it. I'm not saying we have to get legalistic with Sabbath. I'm not saying if you don't practice Sabbath, it's some sort of sin. I just think this is a beautiful gift that God has given us to help us be a holy and distinct set-apart people. So pick a day and try to Sabbath. Some of you are like, I can't, I can't. Work towards being able to pick a day and Sabbath. Your life will not be the same. You'll not be able to participate in the same things. You'll not be able to do the same things, but pick a day and Sabbath. When I Sabbath well, so I, I try to pick one day a week and I try to Sabbath, and I don't do it every week. And for me, Sabbath's not on Sundays, because I don't know if you know this, I work on Sundays, but um, I try to do Saturdays. I try to Sabbath on Saturdays. So when I Sabbath well, kind of how I prepare for that is hopefully on Fridays, I get all the errands done. And hopefully on Fridays, I've cleaned the whole house so that the next day I'm not just feeling like I need to clean the whole house. When I Sabbath well, I, I'm slowing down. When I Sabbath well, I'm spending more intentional time with friends and family. When I Sabbath well, I, I usually am outside for a bit. When I'm sab Sabbathing well, I'm kind of just letting the Lord take me and, and my family the way he wants to take us that day. I slow down. When I Sabbath well, I have extra time to talk to God. 
extra time to pray and think about him and think about my week. That's what it looks like for me. But I, I just wonder, again, if this is something we need to commit ourselves to. I wonder how much it would change us as a people if we committed to this gift of Sabbath. It's something the people of God throughout time and history have committed themselves to, and I think it's a little bit um, like almost prideful to think, oh, we don't do that anymore. So I think the people of God need to Sabbath. All right, let's get to the third distinctive of God's people. The third thing that they, that they did there, the third big thing at least that I see in the text is they were committed to corporate worship together. They were committed to corporate worship, right? You saw what they did. They said, hey, we together as a people, we're going to be generous. We're going to give to the temple. We're going to fund the, the temple. We're going to make it so the Levites can do their priestly work. We're going to make it so the singers can sing and help us to worship God. We're going to make sure to do all sorts of offerings. We're going to make sure that we give our first fruits, not our last fruits. They commit to the temple of God, which was really committing to corporate worship. The people of God are a people committed to corporate worship. Now, something we have to remember before we go on. The people of God are committed to corporate worship. This is not the only thing we're committed to. Sometimes I think when pastors talk about being committed to the corporate worship moment, people hear, he's saying, that's all we got to be committed to. That's all we got to do. No, read Nehemiah. There are all sorts of things that the people of God are committed to. And one of them happens to be corporate worship an intentional time together where we praise God. I think that, that corporate worship has kind of gotten either a bad rap in the recent years or it's been put on the back burner. Corporate worship has gotten a bad rap, kind of what I talked about a little bit earlier. There have been guys that have come in and they just want to make a buck off people. So you see them late night on television saying, sow this seed of $50 into my ministry and you'll get your wildest dreams and desires and everything you could ever want and dream for. And so there's been kind of this like, man, is corporate worship really that important? Are we even doing it that right? And then even there's just been bad experiences in corporate worship and crazy kind of things that have happened in corporate worship. And so it's gotten a bad rap over the last few decades. But it's also kind of been put on the back burner where being committed to a Sunday moment together corporately, it's like important, but it's not that important. I'll try to get to it. I'll try to make it when I can and all this, all this stuff. It's really been put on the back burner. I think it's been put on, the back, put on the back burner because the reality is we live such busy lives and then two, we have lives totally centered around ourselves and not around God. When our lives are centered around God, corporate worship becomes much more important. Now listen, I'm not trying to guilt trip you guys for those that are going, oh, I've missed church four times this month. He's thinking about me or whatever. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to say, it's not a bad thing to be committed to corporate worship. In fact, it's something the people of God have always been committed to. They commit themselves to worship together and usually at least weekly. <laughs> That's something the people of God have always done. And I think when we commit ourselves to corporate worship, it will change us in all sorts of ways. It will remind us of who Jesus is. It will remind us of his mission in the world. It will uh, uh, compel us to love better and love more. 
That doesn't always happen. There's plenty of people that come to church every single week and nothing changes about them and they're the same mean, horrible, sinful person. I don't, I, I'm wrestling with the Holy Spirit on that one at times. <laughs> but the people of God have always been a people committed to corporate worship. They don't give it a bad rap. They give people bad rap, sure, and they don't put it on the back burner. It's always been something that they're committed to. All right, I want to give a, a, a little correlation, and people say correlation is not causation, and that's probably true in certain ways, but I want to give a little correlation, and I was thinking about the people in my life who have been the most committed to corporate worship that I know. And coincidentally, a lot of those same people are the same people that serve and love the world more than anybody I know. The people I was thinking about, honestly, were, was my dad, who he goes to church, maybe to two or three different churches on a Sunday, which that's a different issue. But really, it's not an issue because he's just trying to love God. Like, he's just trying to worship God. But, like, that's what's important to him. He grew up in a culture where he went to church more than once on a Sunday. And then I was thinking of the deacons in this church. The deacons in our church, we have a group of people who have set out to serve this church and love this church and care for this church, particularly in vulnerable moments or even just when we need some extra help serving people in certain ways. And I think about the deacons, and almost every Sunday when I'm preaching, I see the deacons out in the, in the audience. They're out here, worshiping. And I can't help but think that the people that are most committed to the corporate worship experience might also be the, the people most changed and used by God in the rest of the world. Again, I'm not trying to lay on a guilt trip. I'm not trying to say, I just think that when we humble ourselves and commit ourselves to corporate worship together, God does something with that. Again, not every time, but I think when we humbly come to this place expecting God to move, he often does. The people of God have always been people committed to corporate worship when they're at their healthiest. It's not a bad thing. It's good for us to be committed to this. It's good for us to use our finances to do all this. It's not a bad thing as much as the world might want to make it seem like it is. Okay, so we saw three ways that the people of God are distinct. They, they, they refuse to syncretize their faith. They choose to Sabbath, and they're committed to corporate worship. I, I, what I've been doing at the end of every sermon is I want to bring this forward today. to today. I want to bring it to the other side of the resurrection because we actually have it better than the people in Nehemiah's day. We get this beautiful picture of Jesus, and Jesus actually lived out these identities and these disciplines in much more real and meaningful and universal ways even for us. And so I want to look at Jesus and say, hey, how has he lived out these distinctives? How has he shown us how he's holy and set apart? Like Jesus was faithful to the law. He was faithful to the law. And so he called out the syncretisms in his day. He used Sabbath as a gift. He didn't neglect it or abandon it or get too legalistic with it. He used it as the gift that it was. He was often found in the temple worshiping with his people. Not only that, Jesus fulfilled the law in a way none of us can. Jesus fulfilled the law in a way that none of us who try to follow the law to the T can. He fulfilled it in a way that we can't. Jesus gave us the gift of his life by dying on the cross for our sins, 
so that we can worship him in spirit and in truth as he forms us into his people, into the temple of the living God, Ephesians says. And he resurrected, showing us one day that we will find our full rest in him, in the resurrection. Jesus always fulfills and embodies the distinctives of God's people. So should we. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for making us a holy and a distinct people. God, as we've been through the book of Nehemiah, we've just gotten to see time and time and time again how you form a people, what you invite us into, what you have for us. God, we want to be a holy and a set-apart people, but often in our flesh, God, we'd rather just be our own people and do our own things and and live for ourselves in ways that we shouldn't live for ourselves. And so God, convict us of that and help us to repent. Help us to turn from that and turn to you instead. God, help us to be a people that embody these things in all the right ways. That we don't get too legalistic with it, but we also don't abandon these things altogether. God, you are forming us into a holy and distinct people. And it's because of what your son did on the cross and his resurrection that makes it so we can be a holy and a distinct people. Holy Spirit, I ask that you live through us in a way that we're truly holy and distinct. Help us, Lord, in that endeavor. We want to do it because of what you've given us, not because we want to work hard, but because you've shown us grace and you love us and you are forming us. God, we love you and we need you. Amen.